Warning, Seriously Strange covers topics that may frighten or disturb you. Viewer discretion is advised. Come one, come all, step right up and be amazed by our next act. The clowns, these delightfully dark jokesters with bizarre names and freakish behaviors, crazed individuals who hide their faces behind paint, strangers who are severely unstable and take overwhelming joy in pain. I ask you, ladies and gentlemen, what's not to like? In late August 2016, police in North Carolina received calls from worried parents who reported that several clowns were attempting to lure children into the nearby woods. Hoax or not, authorities found it far from funny, but apparently the joke was only just beginning. From North Carolina, an epidemic of creepy clown sightings spread across the country with incidents reported in over two dozen states and even overseas in the United Kingdom. Most of these clowns are seen stalking neighborhoods and cemeteries or standing by roadsides, terrifying those who pass by them. Several children were even chased by clowns wielding weapons and several schools were put on lockdown because of clown-related hoaxes. Many schools have banned clown costumes for Halloween festivities to avoid adding to the hysteria, but so far it seems the clowns may be in more danger than the public. After sightings began near Pennsylvania State University, a large group of students gathered to embark on a massive clown hunt, and recently one clown was beaten by a group of people he'd been following. But who are these clowns and why are they appearing now? Most believe the rise in sightings has to do with the upcoming Halloween holiday, but theories have ranged from a viral marketing campaign to a clown cult to a social media craze making its way across the globe. But why do so many of us fear clowns? Psychologists say it's written in our genetics. To survive as a species, recognizing safe, friendly faces is crucial. But because clowns have distorted and exaggerated features with grotesque smiles or frowns frozen in place, we can't know whether they're harmless or intend to do far more than frighten us. Married couple Marlene and Michael Warren resided in a wealthy community in West Palm Beach, Florida, where they also had a successful business together. From all appearances, they had a happy marriage while also maintaining a working relationship. But appearances are often deceiving. In May of 1990, Marlene opened her front door and came face to face with a clown who was carrying a bouquet of white and red carnations and two silver balloons. Flattered, Marlene reached for the gift, but before she could even utter a thank you, the clown pulled out a gun and shot Marlene dead. Her son heard the commotion and ran to his mother, catching a glimpse of the assailant speeding off in a white car. The investigation revealed only two possible suspects, Marlene's husband, Michael, and 27-year-old Sheila Keene, who had worked for the Warrens. Michael and Sheila had often been rumored to have been having an affair, and Sheila was seen buying balloons, flowers, and a clown costume the day of the murder. But both denied the accusations of infidelity and murder, even though Michael and Sheila had something to gain from killing Marlene. 
Marlene's life insurance policy was in the five-figure range, and her death meant Michael had full ownership of their properties and numerous businesses. While police believe Sheila and Michael planned and carried out the murder, there wasn't enough evidence to convict them, and on paper, the case still remains unsolved. On October 18, 2013, a large party was taking place at a banquet hall in Los Cabos, Mexico. The party was hosted by the powerful and feared Ariano Felix family, who founded the Tijuana Drug Cartel. They'd gathered to celebrate the 64th birthday of notorious drug lord Francisco Rafael. After spending 15 years in prison for his drug-related crimes, Francisco was a free man and spent the night chatting with politicians, family, and celebrities in attendance at his party. Around 8 p.m., when it seemed like the festivities were just getting started, a black SUV pulled up to the entrance of the ballroom. Assuming another guest was arriving, most didn't pay attention to the vehicle. A man dressed as a clown, wearing a blue wig and a round red nose, exited the SUV and made his way to the center of the ballroom to where Francisco was standing. There, the clown withdrew a gun from his sleeve and shot Francisco once in the head, point blank, and several more times as he collapsed to the floor. The party turned to chaos, and while everyone flocked to Francisco's side, the assailant escaped in the SUV with his two accomplices. Years later, no official suspect or motive for the murder has been definitively determined. However, authorities do believe that the crime was more than likely orchestrated by a rival cartel for Francisco's unpaid debts and retributions. Eamon Carlock was regarded as an upstanding citizen in his community of Springfield, Illinois. A former minister and youth counselor, he also served on the police force at one time. But beyond work, he also enjoyed performing for children in Sunday school as the Christian clown Klutzo. But Klutzo had more than just magic tricks up his sleeves. Eamon often visited orphan children as Klutzo in countries around the world. In June 2007, he was returning from the House of Joy Orphanage in the Philippines when he was stopped for a routine search by airport security. When searching Eamon's laptop and camera, authorities were horrified to find dozens of pictures of naked children, and after raiding his home, they uncovered at least 21 more videos of child pornography. The photos showed Eamon engaging in sexual acts with young boys, and after several orphans confessed that Eamon had molested them, he was arrested and put in jail. While awaiting his trial, Eamon's health declined significantly. He often refused to eat his meals, and his kidneys eventually began to shut down. On November 15, 2007, Eamon was tased following a struggle with prison officials and passed away later that day. His cause of death couldn't be determined, and while he never stood trial, the evidence against him would have been more than enough to find him guilty. Pogo the Clown often attended various fundraisers and charity events and made the occasional appearance at local children's hospitals, bringing joy wherever he went. But behind the painted smile was a man who harbored dark and violent desires, a man named John Wayne Gacy. 
Gacy was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1942 to an abusive life by an alcoholic father. Throughout his childhood, Gacy was close to his sisters and mother, however sought the approval of his abusive father. His father would often beat him with a leather belt for the smallest offenses and even bash him in the head with a broomstick to knock him out. This, combined with constant ridicule, traveled with Gacy into his adolescence. When Gacy was only nine years old, he was molested multiple times by a family friend. Gacy never told this to his father, as he believed his father would only blame him. In fourth grade, Gacy, a victim of bullying by his peers, began suffering blackouts, which would sometimes keep him out of school. His grades began to decline as a result, and his father would insult him, even as he lied in a hospital bed. It didn't matter if the doctors vouched for his seizure disorder, his father accused Gacy of faking it for sympathy. Eventually, Gacy had had enough, and to get away from his dysfunctional family, moved to Las Vegas to find work. He took a job within the ambulance service, but was eventually moved to work as a mortuary attendant. But to save on costs, he slept on a cot behind the embalming room. During one night, Gacy crept into the coffin of a deceased teenage boy and fondled and caressed the body. This brought on a powerful realization. He needed to return home, and did so as soon as he could. In 1964, Gacy moved back to Illinois and got married, and eventually he joined with the JCs, a leadership training and civic organization. He worked hard for the organization, and by 1965 was named the third most outstanding JC in the entire state of Illinois, something he was greatly proud of. The following year, Gacy's father-in-law offered him a position managing three Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurants in Waterloo, Iowa. The position paid good money, and Gacy took it gladly, moving with his wife to Waterloo later that year. He joined the local JC chapter there and ascended the ranks rapidly, just as before. He worked long hours between his dedication to the JCs and his position managing the restaurants. His life at this point he described as perfect, he had two children with his wife, and his father even, during a visit, admitted to Gacy that he was wrong about him. However, J.C. life in Iowa had a lot more to offer below the surface. Wife-swapping, prostitution, and drugs were abundant, and Gacy took part in as much as he could, regularly cheating on his wife. This kind of life inspired Gacy to open a club in his basement where he would invite restaurant employees over to drink and play pool. He often socialized with his male employees, disregarding most of the females that worked for him, and would get the teenage boys drunk and make sexual advances on them. If they denied him, he'd write it off as a joke. In 1967, Gacy's obsessions began to take form. He committed his first known sexual assault on a 15-year-old boy, a son of a fellow JC member. He got the boy drunk and persuaded him to perform oral sex on him. More and more teenage boys began to fall victim to Gacy's tricks. From convincing a boy to have sex with his wife and then blackmailing him in exchange for oral sex, to lying to the boys, telling them that he was carrying out homosexual experiments for scientific research and paying the boys to be a part of it. Eventually, the very first boy that Gacy had sexually abused notified his father. Gacy, nervous about being exposed as a sexual deviant, was able to rally some support by fellow JCs, but it all soon came crumbling down. Gacy offered to pay one of his employees $300 to lure the boy he had molested to a secluded area, spray him with mace, and beat him to ensure he didn't testify in court. That's just what the employee did, but it didn't deter the young boy. He immediately reported it to police, 
Gacy was eventually sentenced to 10 years in prison and his wife filed for divorce. He'd never see her or his children again. In prison, as expected, Gacy became a model inmate, going so far as to even improve prison conditions for other inmates. He was granted probation in 1970 after only serving 18 months. He promptly relocated back to Chicago and moved in with his mother once again and became a short order cook. Not even a full year later, Gacy was charged with attempting to rape another teenage boy. The complaint, however, was dismissed when the boy failed to appear in court. The Iowa Board of Parole was never informed of this incident and eight months later, his parole ended. Records of Gacy's criminal convictions in Iowa were sealed shortly thereafter. Gacy, with help from his mother, went on to purchase a home in Cook County. The address was 8213 Summerdale Avenue, and that house would become one of horrors. Gacy eventually went on to start his own construction business and made a very good living with it. He was remarried in 1972 and narrowly avoided another molestation conviction just a week before the wedding when he impersonated a police officer to convince a boy to give him oral sex. The boy tried to blackmail Gacy into paying for silence, and the charges were dropped. The scare wouldn't deter him, though. Eventually, on a business trip, he raped one of his employees, which led to the employee visiting Gacy while he was working out in his backyard and beating him. His mother-in-law drove the employee off, and Gacy claimed that the attack was because he refused to pay the boy for low-quality work. In spite of this, Gacy went on to do what he always did, become a model citizen. He was very active and was considered a great asset to his community. And eventually, he came upon a group called the Jolly Jokers. The Jolly Jokers dressed as clowns and would perform at fundraising events and parades, as well as entertain hospitalized children. In 1975, he joined their ranks and created his own persona for the role, Pogo the Clown. He would perform at parties and events and would even go out for drinks dressed as Pogo. Gacy's wife noticed he would bring a lot of teenage boys over to his garage and found gay pornography inside his house. Gacy later admitted to his wife that he was bisexual and refused to have sex with her any longer. The two eventually divorced. Truth be told, Gacy's wife had no idea of the monster she had for a husband. In 1972, Gacy picked up a 15-year-old boy named Timothy McCoy, who he took on a sightseeing tour of Chicago. After the trip, Gacy drove home with the boy and offered to have him spend the night. Gacy awoke the following morning to see Timothy standing in his bedroom doorway with a knife. Gacy attacked Timothy and after a fight, stabbed him to death. Gacy stepped out into the kitchen and realized that Timothy had been preparing breakfast for the two and wasn't intending on killing Gacy at all. He just defended himself from Gacy attacking him. Gacy realized in this moment that he had experienced an orgasm while killing the boy. He had a taste for murder and he wanted more. Timothy was buried under Gacy's house and it took a full two years before Gacy felt the urge to murder again. His next victim went unidentified, however. He stowed the boy's body in his closet and realized that a fluid had leaked out of the boy's nose and mouth and stained his carpet. So he started stuffing cloth, sometimes the victim's own underwear, into their mouths. After his divorce, Gacy turned things up and began something he liked to call cruising. Murder, bury, murder, 
Barry Gacy lured any boys he could, a good number of which were employed by him, and strangled them to death, most of the time with a tourniquet. He would often con the boys into putting themselves in handcuffs. From there, he could take advantage of them and kill them, sometimes multiple boys at a time. He'd make up excuses whenever he was questioned, claiming the youths had expressed that they wanted to run away. Though many had their suspicions, and some parents even urged police to investigate Gacy further, he managed to sneak his way out of police confrontation. Bodies on top of bodies were buried in Gacy's crawl space. Eventually, Gacy took one boy in particular and would do something very uncharacteristic. Gacy took a boy named Robert Donnelly at gunpoint and took him to his home. He raped and tortured the boy to such an extent the boy begged Gacy to kill him. After a number of hours, Gacy took the boy to his place of work, took off the handcuffs he bound him with, and released him. Police questioned Gacy, to which he claimed that he had a consensual sex-slave relationship with the boy. The police believed him. Gacy continued to murder day after day, week after week, but he soon came upon a problem. He was running out of real estate in his crawl space. So he started dumping the bodies into a nearby river. Eventually, another boy went missing after claiming he was going to meet with a contractor about a possible job. That contractor was Gacy. Police immediately began to try and get information out of Gacy. They kept him under heavy surveillance around the clock, which took a toll on his well-being. He would invite the surveillance officers to lunch with him confidently, and even told them at one point, you know, clowns can get away with murder. Eventually, Gacy did break down after so much oppressive surveillance covering every aspect of his life and evidence piling up against him, he confessed in 1978. Gacy was sentenced to death after over 30 bodies were discovered, most of which dug up from his crawl space. While on death row, Gacy often painted, most famously, a piece of himself as Pogo the Clown. He died by lethal injection in May of 1994. A lot of people hate their bosses for a lot of reasons. It's probably true that a lot of those people are a bit luckier than they think. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there.
Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners' support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.